Part 1, Chapter 9, Part 3 of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 9, Part 3. 5. When the uniformed chauffeur drove the car with a grand sweep under the marquise of the ostentatious pale yellow block in the Avenue Hoche, where Irene Wheeler had had her flat, Mr. Ingram and the police agent were standing on the steps, but nobody else was near. Little Mr. Ingram came forward anxiously, his eyes humid and his face drawn with pain and distress. "'We know,' said Lois. "'I met Mr. Cardo at Longchamp. He knew.' Mr. Ingram's pain and distress seemed to increase. He said after a moment, "'Alfred will drive you home, dear, at once. Alfred, vous seriez gentil de reconduire mademoiselle à la rue Tatane? He had the air of supplicating the amiable chauffeur. Uh, "'Mr. Cannon, I particularly want a few words with you.' "'But, Father, I must come in,' said Lois. "'I must—' "'You will go home immediately. "'Please, please do not add to my difficulties. "'I shall come home in myself as quickly as possible. "'You could do nothing here. "'The seals have been affixed.' "'Lois raised her chin in silence. "'Then Mr. Ingram turned to the police agent, "'spoke to him in French, and pointed to the car persuasively, "'and the police agent permissively nodded. "'The chauffeur, with an affectation of detachment "'worthy of the greatest days of valetry, drove off, leaving George behind. Mr. Ingram descended the steps. "'I think perhaps we might go to a café,' said he in a tone which dispersed George's fear of a discussion as to the propriety of the unchaperoned visit to the races. They sat down on the terrace of a large café near the Place des Ternes, a few hundred yards away from the Avenue Hoche. The café was nearly empty, citizens being either in the Bois or on the main boulevard. Mr. Ingram sadly ordered box. The waiter, flapping his long apron, called out in a loud voice as he went within, De blonde, de... George supplied cigarettes. Mr. Cannon, began Mr. Ingram, it is advisable for me to tell you a, a most marvellous and painful story. I have only just heard it. It has overwhelmed me, but I must do my duty. He paused. Certainly, said George self-consciously, not knowing what to say. He nearly blushed, as, in an attempt to seem at ease, he gazed negligently round at the rows of chairs and marble tables, and at the sparse traffic of the somnolent place. Mr. Ingram proceeded. When I first knew Irene Wheeler, she was an art student here. So was I. But I was already married, of course, and older than she. Exactly what her age was, I should not care to say. I can, however, say quite truthfully that her appearance has scarcely altered in those nineteen years. She always affirmed that her relatives in Indianapolis were wealthy, or at least had money, but that they were very mean with her. She lived in the simplest way. As for me, I had to give up art for something less capricious, but capricious enough in all conscience. Miss Wheeler went to America and was away for some time, a year or two. When she came back to Paris, she told us that she had made peace with her people, and that her uncle, whom for present purposes I will call Mr. X., a very celebrated railway magnet of Indianapolis, had adopted her. Her new manner of life amply confirmed these statements. Dubois, cried the waiter, slapping down on the table two saucers and two stout glass mugs filled with frothing golden liquid. George, unaccustomed to the ritual of cafés, began at once to sip. But Mr. Ingram, aware that the true boulevardier always ignores his bock for several minutes, 
behaved accordingly. She was evidently extremely rich. I have had some experience, and I estimate that she had the handling of at least half a million francs a year. She seemed to be absolutely her own mistress. You have had an opportunity of judging her style of existence. However, her attitude towards ourselves was entirely unchanged. She remained intimate with my wife, who, I may say, is an excellent judge of character, and she was exceedingly kind to our girls, especially Lois, but Laurentine too, and, as they grew up, she treated them like sisters. Now, Mr. Cannon, I shall be perfectly frank with you. I shall not pretend that I was not rather useful to Miss Wheeler, I mean in the press. She had social ambitions, and why not? One may condescend towards them, but do they not serve a purpose in the structure of society? Very rich as she was, it was easy for me to be useful to her. And at worst, her pleasure in publicity was quite innocent. Indeed, it was so innocent as to be charming. Naive, shall we call it. Here Mr. Ingram smiled sadly, tasted his bock, and threw away the end of a cigarette. Well, he resumed, I'm coming to the point. This is the point which I have learnt scarcely an hour ago. I was called up on the telephone immediately after you and Lois had gone. This is the point. Mr. X was not poor Irene's uncle, and he had not adopted her. But it was his money that she was spending. Mr. Ingram gazed fixedly at George. I see, said George calmly, rising to the role of man of the world. I see. He had strange mixed sensations of pleasure, pride and confusion. And you've just found out? I have just found it out from Mr. X himself, whom I met for the first time today in poor Irene's flat. I never assisted at such a scene, never. It positively unnerved me. Mr. X is a man of fifty-five, fabulously wealthy, used to command, autocratic, famous in all the stock exchanges of the world. When I told you that he cried like a child, oh, I've never had such an experience. His infatuation for Irene, indescribable, indescribable. She had made her own terms with him, he told me himself. Astounding terms, but for him it was those terms or nothing. He accepted them, had to. She was to be quite free. The most absolute discretion was to be observed. He came to Paris or London every year, and sometimes she went to America. She utterly refused to live in America. Why didn't she marry him? He has a wife. I have no doubt in my own mind that one of his reasons for accepting her extraordinary terms was to keep in close touch with her at all costs, in case his wife should die. Otherwise, he might have lost her altogether. He told me many things about poor Irene's family in Indianapolis, which I will not repeat. It was true that they had money, as Irene said, but as for anything else. The real name was not Wheeler. Has he been over here long? He landed at Sherbourg last night, just arrived. And she killed herself at once. Whether the deed was done immediately before or immediately after his arrival is not yet established. And I need hardly tell you that Mr. X has already fixed up arrangements not to appear in the case at all. But one thing is sure. She had made all the preparations for suicide, made them with the greatest care. The girls saw her yesterday, and both Lois and I spoke to her on the telephone this morning. Not a trace of anything in her voice. I assumed she had given a message for Lois to the chauffeur. Yes, said George, we never dreamed. Of course not, of course not. But why did she? Another man, my dear sir, another man. A young man named Defaucombleau in the French embassy in London. 
Oh, him! George burst out. I know him, he added fiercely. You do? Yes, I remember Laurentine saying. Poor Irene, I fear, was very deeply in love with him. She had written to Mr. X about Defaucomblo. He showed me the letter. Most touching, really, most touching. His answer to it was to come to Europe at once. But poor Irene's death had nothing to do with his coming. She did not know he was coming. She shot herself as she lay in bed, and on the pillow was a letter from this man, Defaucomblo, well, saying good-bye to her. I saw the letter, not a letter that I should wish to remember. Perhaps she had told him something of her life. I much fear that Defaucomblo will be fetched from London, though I hope not. There would be no object. No, thank you, I will not smoke again. I only wanted to say this to you. All Paris knows that my daughters were intimate with poor Irene. Now, if anything comes out, if anything should come out, if there's any talk, you can see my fear. I wish to assure you, Mr. Cannon, that I had not the slightest suspicion, not the slightest. And yet we journalists cannot exactly be called ingenuous. But I had not the slightest suspicion, nor had my wife. You know the situation between the Red Sin and your friend Lucas. You and he are very intimate, I believe. May I count on you to explain everything from my point of view to Mr. Lucas? I could not bear that the least cloud should rest upon my little Lorenzin. You needn't trouble about Lucas, said George positively. Lucas will be all right. Still, I'll talk to him. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I knew I could rely on you. I've kept you a long time, but I'm sure you understand. I'm thinking only of my girls. Not for anything would I have them know the truth about the affair. But aren't they bound to know it? George asked. Mr. Ingram was wounded. I hope not. I hope not, he said gravely. It is not right that young girls should know such things. But surely, sooner or later. Ah, after they are married, conceivably, that would be quite different, he admitted with cheerfulness. And now, he smiled, I'm afraid I've got to go and write the case up for London. I can catch the mail, I think. If not, I must cable. But they hate me to cable when the mail is possible. Can I drop you anywhere? Simultaneously, he signalled to a taxi and knocked on the window for the attendance of the waiter. Thanks, if you're going anywhere near the Place de l'Opera, said George. 6. He was excited rather than saddened by the tragic event. He was indeed very excited, and also he had a deep satisfaction, because it seemed to him that he had at last been truly admitted into the great secret fellowship of adult males. The initiation flattered his pride. He left Mr. Ingram at the door of an English newspaper office in the Boulevard des Italiens, and, after vainly asking for telegrams at the hotel, walked away, aimlessly at first, along broad pavements encumbered with the chairs and tables of vast, crowded cafes, and with bright Sunday idlers and sinister street vendors. But in a moment he decided that he must, and ought, to pay a call in the Rue d'Etienne. Mr. Ingram had said nothing about his seeing Lois again, had not referred to Mrs. Ingram's invitation to repeat his visit, might even vaguely object to an immediate interview between him and Lois. Yet he could not, as a man of the world, abandon Lois so unceremoniously. He owed something to Lois, and he owed something to himself. And he was a free adult. The call was natural and necessary, and if Mr. Ingram did not like it, he must, in the five towns phrase, lump it. George set off to find the Rue Ten unguided. It was pleasurable to think that there was a private abode in the city of cafes, hotels and museums to which he had the social right of entry.
The watching concierge of the house nodded to him politely as he began to mount the stairs. The Ingram servant smiled upon him as upon an old and familiarly respected friend. Mademoiselle Lewis, he said with directness. The slatternly benevolent girl widened her mouth still further in a smile still more cordial and led him to the drawing-room. As she did so, she picked up a newspaper packet that lay on a table in the tiny hall and, without putting it on a salver, deposited it in front of Lois, who was alone in the drawing-room. George wondered what Lois would have thought of such an outrage upon established ritual had it happened to her in the home of Irene Wheeler instead of in her own. And then the imagined vision of Irene lying dead in the sumptuous home in the Avenue Hoche seemed to render all established ritual absurd. "'So you've come!' exclaimed Lois harshly. "'Mother's quite knocked over, and the Rensin's looking after her. "'All the usual eau de cologne business. "'And I should say father's not much better. "'My poor parents. "'What did Dad want you for?' "'The servant had closed the door. "'Lois had got up from her chair and was walking about the room, "'pulling aside a curtain and looking out, "'tapping the mantelpiece with her hand, "'tapping with her feet the base of the stove. "'George had the sensation of being locked in a cage "'with a mysterious, incalculable and powerful animal.' He was fascinated. He thought, I wanted to see her alone, and I am seeing her alone. Well, she insisted, what did Dad want you for? Oh, he told me a few things about Miss Wheeler. I suppose he told you about Jules, and I suppose he told you I wasn't to know on any account. Poor old Dad. Instead of feeling he's my father, do you know what I feel? I feel as if I was his mother. He's so clever, he's frightfully clever, but he was never meant for this world. He's just a beautiful child. How in heaven's name could he think that a girl like me could be intimate with Irene and not know about the things that were in her mind? How could he? Why, I've talked for hours with Irene about Jules. She'd much sooner talk with me even than with Mother. She's cried in front of me. But I never cried. I always told her she was making a mistake about Jules. I detested the little worm. But she couldn't see it. No, she couldn't. She'd have quarrelled with me if I'd let her quarrel. However, I wouldn't let her. Fancy quarrelling over a man. She couldn't help being mad over Jules. I told her she couldn't. That was why I bore with her. I always told her he was only playing with her. The one thing that I didn't tell her was that she was too old for him. She really believed she never got any older. When I say too old for him, I mean for her sake, not for his. He didn't think she was too old. He couldn't, with that complexion of hers. I never envied her anything else except her complexion and her money. But he wouldn't marry an American. His people wouldn't let him. He's got to marry into a family like his own, and there's only about ten for him to choose from. I know she wrote to him on Thursday. She must have had the answer this morning. Of course, she had a revolver. I've got one myself. She went to bed and did it. She used to say to me that if she ever did it, that was how she would do it. And father tells me not to add to his difficulties. Don't you think it's comic? But she never told me everything. I knew that. I accused her of it. She admitted it. However... Lois spoke in a low, regular murmur, experimentally aware that privacy in a Paris flat is relative. There were four doors in the walls of the drawing-room, and a bedroom on either side. At moments, George could scarcely catch her words. He'd never heard her say so much at once, for she was taciturn by habit, even awkward in conversation. She glowered at him darkly. The idea flashed through his mind. 
There can't be another girl like her. She's unique. He almost trembled at the revelation. He was afraid, and yet courageous, challenging, combative. She had grandeur. It might be moral or not, but it was grandeur. And that touch about the complexion. She could remember her freckles. She might, in her hard egotism, in the rushing impulses of her appetites, she might be an enemy, an enemy to close with whom would be terrible rapture, and the war of the sexes was a sublime war, infinite superior in emotions to tame peace. And had she not been certified an angel? Had he not himself seen the angel in her? She dwarfed her father and mother. The conception, especially of Mr. Ingram at lunch, deliciously playful and dominating, and now with the adroit wit crushed out of him, and in only a naive sentimentality left, was comic, as she had ruthlessly characterised it. She alone towered formidably over the devastated ruins of Irene's earthly splendour. He said nothing. She rang the bell by the mantelpiece. He heard it ring. No answer. She rang again. Arrivez donc, jeune fille, she exclaimed impatiently. The servant came. Arpotez du thé, Seraphine? Oui, mademoiselle. Then Lois lounged towards the table and tore sharply the wrapper of the newspaper. George was still standing. He's probably got something in about her this week, about her soiree last Tuesday. We weren't invited. Of course he won't. George saw the name, the Sunday Journal. The paper had come by the afternoon mail, and had been delivered, according to weekly custom, by a messenger from Mr. Ingram's office. Lois's tone and attitude tore fatally the whole factitious Parisian tradition, as her hand had torn the wrapper. See here, she said quietly, after a few seconds, and gave the newspaper with her thumb indicating a paragraph. He could hardly read the heading, because it unnerved him, nor the opening lines. But he read this. The following six architects have been selected by the assessors and will be immediately requested by the corporation to submit final designs for the town hall. Mr. Winburn, Mr. Mr. George E. Cannon. What did I always tell you? she said. And then she said, Your telegram must have been addressed wrong or something. He sat down. Once again he was afraid. He was afraid of winning in the final competition. A vista of mayors, corporations, town clerks, committees, contractors, clerks of works frightened him. He was afraid of his immaturity, of his inexperience. He could not carry out the enterprise. He would reap only ignominy. His greatest desire had been granted. He had expected in the event to be wildly happy, but he was not happy. Well, I'm blowed, he exclaimed. Lois, who had resumed the paper, read out, In accordance with the conditions of the competition, each of the above-named will receive an honorarium of one hundred guineas. She looked at him. You'll get that town hall to do, she said positively. You're bound to get it. You'll see. Her incomprehensible but convincing faith passed mysteriously into him. A holy dew relieved him. He began to feel happy. Lois glanced again at the paper, which with arms outstretched she held in front of her like a man, like the men at Pickering's. Suddenly it fell rustling to the floor and she burst into tears. She murmured indistinctly, The last thing she did was for my pleasure, sending the car. George jumped up, animated by an inexpressible tenderness for her. She had weakened. He moved towards her. He did not consider what he was doing. He had naught to say, but his instinctive arms were about to clasp her. 
he was unimaginably disturbed. She straightened and stiffened in a second. But of course you've not got it yet, she said harshly, with apparent irrelevance. Seraphine entered bouncingly with the tea. Lois regarded the tray and remarked the absence of the strainer. Il a passoir? she demanded with implacable sternness. Seraphine gave a careless, apologetic gesture. 7. It was late in September when most people had returned to London after the holidays. John Orgreave mounted to the upper floor of the house in Russell Square where George had his office. Underneath George's name on the door had been newly painted the word Inquiries, and on another door opposite the word Private. John Orgreave knocked with exaggerated noise at this second door and went into what was now George's private room. I suppose one ought to knock, he said in his sir hearty voice. Hello, Mr. Orgreave, George exclaimed, jumping up. If the mountain doesn't come to Mahomet, Mahomet must come to the mountain, said John Orgreave. Come in, said George. He noticed and ignored the touch of sarcasm in John Orgreave's attitude. He had noticed a similar phenomenon in the attitude of various people within the last four days, since architectural circles and even the world in general had begun to resound with the echoing news that the competition for the Northern Town Hall had been won by a youth not twenty-three years of age. Mr. Enright had been almost cross, asserting that the victory was perhaps a fluke, as the design of another competitor was in reality superior to George's. Mr. Enright had also said in his crabbed way, You'll soon cut me out. And George, protesting, had gone on, Oh, yes you will, I've been through this sort of thing before. I know what I'm talking about. You're no different from the rest. Whereupon George, impatient and genuinely annoyed, had retorted upon him quite curtly, and had remembered what many persons had said about Mr. Enright's wrong-headed, jealous sensitiveness, and aversions which he, as a worshipper of Mr. Enright, had been accustomed to rebut. Further, Lucas himself had not erred by the extravagance of his enthusiasm for George's earth-shaking success. For example, Lucas had said, Don't go get above yourself, old chap. They may decide not to build it after all. You never know with these corporations. A remark extremely undeserved, for George considered that the modesty and simplicity of his own demeanour under the stress of an inordinate triumph were rather notable. Still, he had his dignity to maintain against the satiric, and his position was such that he could afford to maintain it. Anyhow, he preferred the sardonic bearing of his professional intimates to the sycophancy of certain acquaintances, and of eager snobs unknown to him. Among sundry telegrams received was one composed regardless of cost, and signed, Turnbull. He could not discover who Turnbull might be, until John Orgreave had reminded him of the wigged, brown, conversational gentleman whom he met on one occasion only, at Adela's. In addition to telegrams, he had had letters, some of which contained requests for money, demanded even as a right by the unlucky from the lucky, and an assortment of charity circulars, moneylender circulars, and bucket-shop lures. His mother's great sprawling letter had pleased him better than any, save one. The exception was his stepfather's. Edwin Clayhanger, duly passing on to the next generation the benevolent Midland jibe which he had inherited, wrote, Dear George, it's better than a bat in the eye with a burnt stick. Yours affectionately, Nunks. As a boy, George had at one period called his stepfather Nunks, but he had not used the appellation for years. He was touched now. The newspapers had been hot after him, and he knew not how to defend himself. 
his photograph was implored. He was waylaid by journalists Shabby and by journalists Spruce, and the resulting interviews made him squirm. He became a man of mark at Pickering's. Photographers entreated him to sit free of charge. What irritated him in the whole vast affair was the continual insistence upon his lack of years. Nobody seemed to be interested in his design for the town hall. Everybody had the air of regarding him as a youthful prodigy, a performing animal. Personally, he did not consider that he was so very young. Nevertheless, he did consider that he was a youthful prodigy. He could recall no architect in history who had done what he had done at his age. The town clerk who travelled from the north to see him treated his age in a different manner, the patronising. He did not care for the town clerk. However, the town clerk was atoned for by the chairman of the new town hall subcommittee, a true human being named Sulter, with a terrific accent and a taste for architecture, pictures and music. Mr Sulter, though at least forty-five, treated George without any appearance of effort as a coeval. George immediately liked him, and the mere existence of Mr Salter had the effect of dissipating nearly all George's horrible qualms and apprehensions about his own competence to face the overwhelming job of erection. Mr Salter was most soothing in the matter of specifications and contractors. "'So you've got into your new room,' said John Orgreave. Never before had he mounted to see George either in the new room or in the old room. The simple fact of the presence there of one of the partners in the historic firm below compensated for much teasing sarcasm and half-veiled jealousy. It was a sign. It was a seal-authenticating renown. Yes. I only wanted to give you a message from Adela. The Ingram young woman is staying with us. Lois? The name shot out of him, unbidden. Yes. You're humbly supplicated to go to tea today, four o'clock. Thank God I've not forgotten it. George arrived fifty-five minutes late at Bedford Park. Throughout the journey thither, he kept repeating, She said I should do it, and I've done it. I've done it, I've done it. The triumph was still so close behind him that he was constantly realising it afresh, and saying wonderstruck, I've done it. And the miraculous phantasm of the town hall, uplifted in solid stone, formed itself again and again in his enchanted mind, against a background of tremendous new ambitions, rising endlessly one behind another like snowy alps. "'Is this what you call four o'clock?' twittered Adela, between cajolery and protest, somewhat older and facially more artificial, but eternally blonde, still holding her fair head on one side and sinuously waving the palm. "'Sorry, sorry, I was kept at the last moment by a journalist, Johnny.' "'Oh, of course,' said Adela, pooh-poohing with her lips. "'Of course we expect that story nowadays. "'Well, it was a chap from the builder, or I wouldn't have seen him. "'Can't trifle with a trade paper, you know.' he thought. She's like the rest of them, as jealous as the devil. Then Lois came into the room, hatted and gloved, in half-mourning. She was pale and appreciably thinner. She looked nervous, weak, and weary. As he shook hands with her, he felt very self-conscious, as though in winning the competition and fulfilling her prophecy, he had done something dubious for which he ought to apologise. This was exceedingly strange, but it was so. She had been ill after the death of Irene Wheeler. Having left Paris for London on the day following the races, he had written to her about nothing in particular, a letter which meant everything but what it said, and had received an answer from Lorenzin, who announced that her sister was in bed and likely to be in bed, 
and that father and mother wished to be remembered to him. Then he wrote to Lorenzin. When the result of the final competition was published, he had written again to Lois. It seemed to him that he was bound to do so, for had she not willed and decided his victory? No reply, for there had scarcely been time for a reply. Did you get my letter? he smiled. This afternoon, she said gravely. It followed me here. Now I have to go to Irene's flat. I should have been gone in another minute. She will go alone, Adele put in anxiously. I shall be back for dinner, said Lois, and to the stupefaction of George she moved towards the door. But just as she opened the door, she turned her head and, looking at George with a frown, murmured, You can come with me if you like. Adela burst out. He hasn't had any tea. I'm not urging him to come, my dear. Goodbye. Adela and George exchanged a glance, each signalling to the other that perhaps this sick, strange girl ought to be humoured. He abandoned the tea. He was in the street with Lois. He was in the train with her. Her ticket was in his pocket. He had explained to her why he was late, and she had smiled, amiably but enigmatically. He thought... She's no right to go on like this. But what does it matter? She said nothing about the competition, not a word of congratulation. Indeed, she hardly spoke beyond telling him that she had to choose some object at the flat. He was aware of the principal terms of Irene's will, which indeed had caused the last flutter of excitement before oblivion so quickly descended upon the notoriety of the social star. Irene's renown had survived her complexion by only a few short weeks. The will was of a rather romantic nature. Nobody familiar with the intimate circumstances would have been surprised if Irene had divided her fortune between Lois and Lorenzin. The bulk of it, however, went back to Indianapolis. The gross total fell far short of popular estimates. Lois and Lorenzin received £5,000 apiece, and in addition they were requested to select each an object from Irene's belongings. Lois out of the London flat, Lorenzin out of the Paris flat. Lois had come to London to choose, and she was staying with Adela, sole chaperone available. Since the death of Irene, Mrs Ingram had been excessively strict in the matter of chaperones. They took a hansom at Victoria. Across the great square, whose leaves were just yellowing, George saw the huge block of flats, and in one story all the blinds were down. Lois marched first into the lift, masterfully, as though she inhabited the block. She asked no one's permission. Characteristically, she had an order from the solicitors and the keys of the flat. She opened the door without any trouble. They were inside, within the pale-sheeted interior. Scarcely a thing had yet been moved, for, with the formalities of the judicatures of France, England, and the state of Indiana to be complied with, events marched slowly under the sticky manipulation of three different legal firms. Lois and George walked cautiously across the dusty, dulled parquets into the vast drawing-room. George doffed his hat. "'I'd better draw the blinds up,' he suggested. "'No, no,' she sharply commanded. "'I can see quite well. I don't want any more light.' There was the piano upon which Laurentian had played, the embrasure of the window, the corner in which Irene had sat spellbound by Jules de Facomplot. The portraits of Irene at least one of which would perpetuate her name. The glazed cases full of her collections. The chief pieces of furniture and all the chairs were draped in the pale, ghostly sheeting. 
Suddenly Lois, rushing to the mantelpiece, cried, This is what I shall take. It was a large photograph of Jules de Faucombleau, bearing the words, A Miss Arini Wheeler, homage respecto de J. de F. You won't, he exclaimed, incredulous, shocked. He thought, she's mad. Yes, I shall. There were hundreds of beautiful objects in the place, and she chose a banal photograph of a despicable creature whom she detested. Why didn't you take one of her portraits, or even a fan? What on earth do you want with a thing like that? His voice was changing. I should take it and keep it forever. He was the cause of it all. This photograph was everything to her once. George revolted utterly, and said with cold, harsh displeasure, You're simply being morbid. There's no sense in it. She dropped down into a chair and the impress of her body dragged the dust-sheet from its gilt arms, exposing them. She put her face in her hands and sobbed. "'You're awfully cruel,' she murmured thickly. The sobs continued, shaking her body. She was beautifully dressed. Her shoes were adorable, and the semi-transparent hose over her fine ankles. She made a most disturbing and unbearable figure of compassion. She needed wisdom, protection, guidance, strength. Every bit of her seemed to appeal for these qualities. But at the same time, she dismayed. He moved nearer to her. Yes, she had grandeur. All the costly and valuable objects in the drawing-room she had rejected in favour of the satisfaction of a morbid and terrible whim. Who could have foreseen it? He moved still nearer. He stood over her. He seized her yielding wrists. He lifted her veil. Tears were running down her cheeks from the yellow eyes. She looked at him through her tears. You're frightfully cruel, she feebly repeated. And what if I am, he said solemnly. Did she really think him hard? Had she always thought him hard? She, the hard one? How strange. Yet no doubt he was hard. His paramount idea was, she had faith in me. It was as if her faith had created the man he was. She was passionately ambitious. So was he. And when he kissed her wet mouth and stroked with incredible delicacy those streaming cheeks, he felt himself full of foreboding. But he was proud and confident. He took her back to Bedford Park. She carried the photograph, unwrapped, but he ventured no comment. She went straight up to her room. You must tell Mrs. Orgreave, she said on the stairs. Adela made a strange remark. Oh, but we always intended you to marry Lois. End of part one, chapter nine, part three.